Hey, this is Sharon, and imagine being given a map to all the hidden profit centers in your business. That's exactly what I'm talking about with my main man, Rob Hanley. Rob is the secret weapon for entrepreneurs where he uses his proprietary hunter method to grow businesses and scale profits. We're getting into all of that right now with Rob Hanley. One thing is for certain, just because it's tried and true doesn't mean it's working right now. So the big question is this, where can you learn what is working right now? The strategies, the tactics, the psychology, and the exact how-to, how to grow your business, how to blow up your personal brand and supercharge your personal growth. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Sharon Srivatsa, and welcome to Business School. So uh, let's talk about diamonds. All right. So here is, here's the cool thing. So there is a park right, in the US. Uh, it's called Diamond State Park or Crater of Diamond State Park. And it's the only place in the world where you can, any person can legally uh, dig the diamonds and keep what you find without having a permit first, right? Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of diamonds have been found here because on average, two diamonds are found every single day in that park. Every single day, right? Uh, one, part, yeah, one visitor at the park found the Amarillo Starlight, which is a 16.37 carat white diamond. Another park visitor found the Star of Shreveport, which is an 8.82 carat white gem. And there was a 4.25 carat Khan Canary diamond, which was found in 1977 and found its way under Hillary Clinton's ring for both of Bill Clinton's uh, presidential inaugurations. And then there's less famous ones. Beth Gilbertson found an 8.66 carat white diamond. 12-year-old boy from North Carolina found a 5.16 carat honey brown diamond, which was worth up to $15,000. And just a couple months later, a 14-year-old girl discovered a 3.85 carat canary diamond. The wildest part about all this, right? Imagine these people who are finding tens of thousands of dollars worth of diamond. They each pay just $6.50 to enter the park. That's it. All you pay is $6.50 for the opportunity to dig. But that's what the catch is. It's an opportunity. So not all people who visit the park will find the diamond. And it's all for a simple reason, which is that the people who find diamonds are digging in the right places and the people who don't, don't dig in the right places so they don't get diamonds. Like, it's kind of obvious, right? But the, the other part of it is, and the reason it's not surprising, is that the creator of Diamond State Park doesn't give you a map. It doesn't make it easy. Right. It's huge and complex. There's 37 and a half acres of plowed field, terrain you've never been in. And then when you don't get a map of all the hidden diamonds, you're left, sorry, with a shovel and a bunch of hope. All you can do is hope that you find a diamond when you start digging randomly. One of the girls who I mentioned earlier who found the diamond, she talks about walking with her family and then suddenly hearing a voice that said to her, oh, you should stop and go back. And she like mucked around in the dirt for a little bit and found a gold diamond. Gold <laughs> diamond. Like, but that's it. Like, that's all you've got is maybe a little voice will tell you what's right. But we hear these stories about people who go digging in these diamond park in the sun park and find these diamonds, make all this money. But we don't realize how many people showed up with the same level of preparation, the same lack of information, the same lack of qualification, and they dug as much, maybe even harder. They found nothing. Right. And they paid six fifty, and maybe they had a great, fun, entertaining day. And if you want to be entertained, that's great. But that's a really horribly inefficient way to make money. And the truth is, if these people had walked in the park and someone said, "Hey," before you go. 
and start digging, would you like a map of all the hidden diamonds in the park? Would you like that? He would be like, uh, yes. Yeah. Please give me that map. Because then they could just walk around and dig, dig up diamonds. Yeah. All day long. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, and we were talking about that's exactly what I see in businesses. Everyone's digging for diamonds, but no one's got a map. So how, um, a lot of, a lot of companies, big, small, interesting, um, pitch to hire you, which is pretty cool. And you help them find a map because you got this, you got this diamond divinity rod, which is kind of cool, which is awesome. So when, let's talk about that for a second. So if I'm a business owner, we're having the first couple of conversations. What are the first few things that you like to kind of talk about when it comes to me as a business owner in this situation, understanding what, what are the pieces? How do I build this map? Yeah, so it's funny. The way I work with uh, people is I have a, a first call before I even start looking for the map itself. And what I'm always looking for is like a cultural fit and a, an ability to help fit. Like, can I get along with you and can I help you? And so we'll have like a qualitative conversation. I have a checklist that I run through. It gives me a rough idea of, you know, hey, are there diamonds in this park? Yeah. To extend the metaphor. Um, and you know, what I'm really looking for is typically people who run a business and they are a product expert or an industry expert. And they, they've got that drive and that understanding where they just get it, the, the world they operate in. Because that means there's probably diamonds that they've never discovered. Right. If someone is a good fit, and if I believe from what they've told me that I can help them, I say, well, cool. Like, I believe I can help you. Here's how it works. But before I do tell you that you can work with me, I actually want to verify and validate that I can definitely help you on a, like, no questions asked. Here is the proof that I will make you a lot more money than you invest. Um, I mean, that's where it starts. And then I get their financials. And I mean, we can get into the specifics of that if you want. Yeah, do the, the big question I want to ask you, so this is, this is really good. Um, for some reason, yeah. um, and maybe I love how you talk about the psychology around this, an entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs get into the, get into business because as you said, they're either technicians or product experts, or they have a specific skill or capability yeah. on what they're going to deliver. Therefore, they try to build a business around the skill or capability. Yeah. Now, that skill or capability from a freelancer to a hired gun turns into this kind of hodgepodge business. When you are looking at that business, like what is the first, like what are one or two high level things you look at right away and you're like, Hey, we should know these. Mm, that is numbers. Yeah. This is really where it starts is if when I'm talking to someone, they don't seem to have a good grasp of their numbers. If they don't know their numbers. And I don't mean instinctively. Like if you can't tell me what the, the trends or the history have been roughly, yeah. That's a huge problem. And it typically means that you are buried in the work and putting out fires and trying to keep your head above water and not understanding how the actions you take are related to the finances that you review, if you review from the beginning. That's, that's like the first big thing. I know it doesn't sound super high level, but it's just common sense. It's not as common as it should be because life happens. Things get in the way. Numbers on a piece of paper aren't as interesting as this customer's order is late. I need to get five more sales so I can make payroll. I've got to do all these things. I've got these tax guys breathing down my neck, all this legislation, PPP. They don't get the time to stop. So that's like the first piece. But then the second sort of high level thing that I look for on a strategic basis, you know, what do we need to know? Which is the question I asked is what relationship is there between the activities we do and the results we get? Mm. Which is all too often someone's doing a lot of activities, but they don't actually know how it connects to the financial results they're getting. 
And as a result, the business is inconsistent. It's under-optimized. It's failing sometimes just because that connection, that knowledge and awareness isn't there. Yeah. I um, What you just said was super powerful for me, especially kind of tying the, uh, you know, hey, here are my activities to what are the results. Yeah. And uh, I see a lot of... Uh, sales trainers out there, right? And the sales trainers are really focused on the front end activities. They're like, hey, make the make the 13 calls. Hum, let's log the number of contacts you made. Let's get yeah. the number of impressions and leads that you generated. Oh I, oh, I got $3 leads. I'm so excited that I got $3 leads. And I'm like, well, great, but you don't have your like, what does that mean? I, I, I literally, Rob, I have, have folks that I, you know, CEOs that I mentor that basically like, yeah. Sharon, you won't believe me. I had got, I've been getting $12 leads still three months ago. Today I'm getting $3 leads. I told them to triple the spend. And I said, well, do you know what your break even cost per lead is? What I, I, are you even following up with you? Really? Oh, they, you know, it's on some nurture sequence. They don't, they don't, it's, there's so much focus with these sales trainers. And I call them like, uh, this is the, called the lead junkie deal monkey mentality. Yeah. And, and so they're totally into the, Hey, I got a lead. And then I don't know how it gets to the deal, but I, I'm in this lead junkie mode. So my question for you is, how do you tie, like, how do you build a map between or a, or a integration between, hey, I'm doing X activity and it's leading to Y result? How do you do that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Good, good question. It's harder the bigger the organization is because of slippage. That's just like the first thing I want to acknowledge is you, you can't always have a perfect model of reality, but our first goal is to model reality. Looking at the PL and then looking at your team, there should be a very clear understanding of how each role either contributes to keeping a customer or acquiring a customer. Mm. That, that's the first step. You should then be able to break down each line item in the PL. Same thing. What activities does this connect to? In the worst case scenario, if you, I wouldn't say it's the worst case, let me rephrase that. If you have a very laissez faire style of leadership as opposed to authoritarian or democratic, you need to be able to ask your people, hey, what do you do over here that produces this result? What do you do that doesn't contribute? And to ask that question in a way which is not accusatory, which isn't saying, oh, you're trying to steal my money. It's very much like, hey, man, I just want a clear picture of reality. So you can do more of what works and is good and less of what doesn't and destroys. That, that's the first part is really seeking to ask the questions of what are we doing? What are the activities? On a really like micro level, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing Craig talks about, Craig Valentine, which is write down what you're doing every day. Just literally write it down. And if that's what you did and you got all your leadership team, your employees, just one day write down everything they did and then repeat it for two more days and then sit down as a group and essentially say, what did this contribute to on the P&L? Did it bring in sales? Did it manage inventory? Did it get new customers? Did it retain old customers? Like where did it sit? Mm. And just have that order. And then everything that doesn't contribute to acquiring or retaining customers, just get rid of. You don't need it unless it's potentially CapEx or R&D. I think that that... I think, I, I mean, I've talked to you a lot. I think that filter, I haven't heard you articulate that way before, sure. um, but that filter is a super powerful one. Right? That's a, I think that filter is powerful for us. Like a, it's a monthly exercise for us. Like we should just be like, hey, why do I have, even if it's an activity or an, even a random expense, like yeah. is, this a, is it built to acquire a new client or to keep service, increase lifetime value in some way? So you're asking a very specific question. That's it. Yeah. The thing that I always think about, and this is a bit ironic, right? So I didn't do finance originally. My background wasn't finance. I was a graphic designer is where I kind of started. And my old man had tried to get me into finance and I didn't really have the interest. And then I had a business and another one and I had to learn all this stuff on the fly. 
And I think what it gave me was this very pragmatic understanding of it. But also because I had this direct response insight, uh, insight or interest. You mentioned before when people come and say, oh, I've got a $3 cost per lead versus a $12. I ask a similar question to you, which is like, well, yeah, but what was the net profit per order? Mm-hmm. How's that increased the marginal net worth of the customer yeah. at all? And if you can't tell me that, it doesn't matter because the only thing we, we care about is what we keep. And right. if that doesn't keep anything, who cares? Yeah. That just has to be connected. Yeah. How, how does, um, so, so a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of discussion around kind of these high level metrics of, Hey, here's my top line sales number. Here's my gross margins. Here's this. What do you, if you had to say, Hey, every business should know these three numbers or this one number or, or which is regardless of the function or the function yeah. industry you're in, what is like one or two or three that I should all, every business should know? Return on assets. Uh, assets being calculated based on if you're a service business, it's employee dollars time. If it's a manufacturing or physical business, it's a hard assets. Um, that'd be the first one. The second one would be your sales to cash turnover ratio. So how much cash per, like, do you keep per dollar of sales? Hmm. So, you know, if you've got net terms and you've got all this mess going on, so you make a million dollars in sales or six million or 10 million or whatever, if your cash ratio, like a client I used to, have it was a turnaround. He was making one percent, one point three percent per dollar of sales turned into cash. That's horrendous. And we made some changes to the business by using that diamond math to turn it into thirteen percent. Wow! Just shy of. And it's what most people don't understand is this quick sidebar is that the business is like a black box for a lot of people. I go make some sales, some stuff happens, and then I have some maybe money at the end. <laughs> This stuff that happens is really important, but because it's really complex and confusing, and to be honest, most people who teach it are really complex and confusing, but don't even get it themselves, you don't know what's happening. So you go, you know what? I'm just going to sell more. Right. And if I sell more, that should solve the problem. But the catch is if you don't have that black box figured out, you actually sell yourself into a bigger problem. You sell yourself into a bigger debt load. You sell yourself into being less liquid and less able to actually maintain your commitments. Uh, when I was playing with the diamond map for a former client earlier today, I was just looking at some really old numbers and I did an annualization of the progress they'd made in one of the years before they worked with me. And it was just so wonderful, the wonderful strong term, but so obvious that if you project out, you can see how if they had grown, they would have cratered because while the top sales side was good, yeah. the internal operational expenses sucked and the cash flow was even worse and they could, they could be even worse off. Right. Oh. And I think, so that's the second one, right? Is, your like your cash from sales ratio. How much cash do you actually get per dollar of sales? And to be honest, if you knew your return on assets, and if you knew your cash from sales, the only other thing I would probably look at is asset turnover ratio or revenue per employee, and that is business dependent again, mm-hmm. sector dependent. But that's it. Everything else is a function of closing that gap, because every business is designed. Every good business is. I turn my assets into revenue. I service that revenue with cost, which gives me some profit left over, and I collect on those promises made and promises given to have cash. I'm trying to turn an asset into cash. That's it. And you're just going to repeat the cycle again. Hopefully you do it at Parser, and that's where the asset turnover or the RPE comes in. Yeah. But that's it. And people get really scared because these sound like really, ooh, financial master, really metric-y things. But it's just real simple. Like, how much money did you make on how much stuff you had? Yeah. Just variations that. Well, the, the, I think... Um, the other cool part about the return on assets is if you ever want to uh, not die, not kind of like work in your business till you die, 
now yeah. you have the now you you can very art- clearly articulate that hey I have these assets these assets get serviced this way with X cost structure they produce Y profit therefore yeah. Rob if you acquire these assets and whatever valuation we agree upon it will provide this result so at least it allows the operator the principal a path to knowing that they are not the only asset yeah yeah I, I think that's a, a really funny one so I've had businesses that have been in physical goods. I've had businesses that have been digital, like software and information publishing, uh, a lot of coaching and consulting as well. And you realize that some things are inherently unsellable, right? Like if I was to try and sell my coaching and consulting, forget about it. I have to lose my brain. There's just no price you can put in it. But as we were talking about earlier, like with this diamond map, I'm taking my knowledge and turning it into an asset that someone else can use to find the diamonds hidden in the business and then use that to make money. And now you have this cycle where it's a predictable, sustainable, scalable business. Right. And that's, that's the heart of the ROA. Yeah. Um, you and I have talked a lot about this, uh, you know, this is a great dovetail into yeah. uh, principal, entrepreneur, service provider, coach, consultant. And you always talk to, you, I think you talked to me about this, this, uh, this ascension model from, uh, you know, if you remember, you're like a prince, knight, whatever. Like, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I don't remember the, but when you told that to me, I was writing it down. I was like, he's talking too fast. But yeah, what it allowed me to do, and I'll frame it for everybody, is as Rob is sharing this, just just see where you are in a couple of points in your life. Maybe uh, maybe personally, you are at level one level. Maybe business wise, you're another. And it, I think it gave me a very natural ascension point of where I go next, as opposed to saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I am the emperor of the world yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we could talk about that as well, by the way, like emperor of the world standards and goals. I love that. But first, first, let's talk about this model. So um, the model comes originally from Alison Armstrong as a development of men. The, the book is called The Amazing Development of Men. And... I was put onto it by my girlfriend and I thought, okay, you know, you said this is an important book to you. I'll read it and see what it is. And it's awesome. So basically she talks about this heuristic, right? Let's call it a heuristic. It's an imperfect model of reality. So don't try and squish it. If you listen to this, don't try and squish it in so that you fit it. Just use it as a guideline. But the first idea, the first concept you have to embrace to understand this model is that men want to provide. Right? This is the idea that men want to provide what people want to provide, whatever you want to call it. It starts when you're a kid, and she refers to this as the scribe. I mean, it's a squire, sorry, the squire. The squire is in servitude to the night. It's when you're you know, young, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. You want to have adventures. You want to provide, but you're young and you haven't really got anything to do. And as you hit your teens and onwards, you enter the psychological development stage of what she refers to as the night. And the knight just wants to go out and conquer and have adventures and have fun. Like, he's not trying to build anything. He's just trying to slay some dragons, man. Like, you know, St. George went and slayed a dragon. It was King Arthur who had a couple other things he was dealing with. But very different stages. And the, the idea of a knight, then, is if he's out there, he's taking on a challenge. Eventually, what's going to happen is the knight has to ascend to the next level, which is the, so to speak, prince phase. And the prince phase occurs, according to Armstrong, when a man realizes the mortality of life. He cannot be everything. He, he cannot be a surgeon and a doctor in the same area, I guess, uh, you know, a NASA astronaut, a world life changing entrepreneur, a mechanic, 
a builder. He can't do everything at, at the same level. He has to pick one place to start building a kingdom. Right? It can be anywhere. It can be coaching. It can be consulting. It can be accounting. It can be entrepreneurship. It can be banking. It can be healthcare. It doesn't matter. But you pick one thing. And then what ends up happening is you go through the low print stage and the middle print stage. And this is where you're doing the long hours. This is where you're doing the work. And Armstrong talks about this taking about 10 years. Of just You're building a kingdom. Uh, she also ties it into the idea that when you realize your father is mortal, whatever stage or whatever profession that is, you really realize like, I have to do this. I have to step up and build something. In some way, life is fleeting. And so you do that and then you eventually achieve something, something great. You have built a kingdom. You enter the stage of the high prince. And the high prince apparently lasts for about six months. And that's where you can coast. You can just chill. Everything's done, man. Like you're basically just ascending to the throne next, the king of your, your empire. So technically the king of your kingdom. And there's the idea you can become an emperor and go after the whole world. But for most guys, being a king is enough, having your kingdom to rule. But sometimes the catch is that something goes wrong. Maybe you've built a kingdom. Something happens in your life, a personal event, business event and you lose it all and you have to go back to being the prince and if that happens the hard part is that you've been there and you've done that and you've done the slog and you don't really want to spend another 10 years doing that right but the easy part is that you've got all the skills the knowledge the networks the, the know-how that you can build faster and it's a balance then of okay i've been here i've done this i don't want to be doing it again but i can do it oh wow it's a lot easier this time and it's just actually maintaining the consistent effort through the boredom to get back to that high prince king stage in an archetypal way. So that's the model as a whole. Yeah, dude. I, 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 how many times have you seen the the high prince have to kind of go back and rebuild? Uh, personally, in terms of uh, being with someone through that whole journey, only a couple. But I know a lot of people who talk about that experience of. Yeah. You know, having gone broke or having lost the love of their life or both. Yeah. A guy who I learned a lot from uh, did very well financially and made a concentrated risk bet is what I would refer to as an investment strategy. And he just got, he got killed. Yeah. Just destroyed by it. And not only did he go so broke that he had a negative eight figure net worth, but his wife left him in that same period. So this guy loses everything. His wife walks on him. And, you know, I'm not privy to what happened, but either way, you walk away from something horrible and then something else that I imagine is pretty horrible happens. He talks about looking for some very permanent solutions to some very temporary problems. Uh, so he had to rebuild again. And what's amazing is talking to him uh, about this is that he had a real uh, Buddhist kind of response. Yeah. I mean, he talks about getting his ear pierced on a ponytail and practicing meditation as part of his process of accepting and working through this. And unsurprisingly, this man has built himself a very tidy fortune once more yeah. because he gets it. Yeah, He's a grizzled veteran, but he's done it. Um, I don't know anyone who's had to do it more than three times. I feel <laughs> like by the by like, oof, oof. Uh, but I think once you, once you are in the building stage, right? Like I'm definitely in the building stage at the moment. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, I, I would love to be not in the building stage. Who wouldn't? But at the same time, I kind of love the building because it's, it's a skill that you get better at. Um, and I guess one last little aside to this is because my uh, temperament, my, my skill is fixing things. That's, that's what I love doing is fixing things and then giving advisory. That's where I excel. 
it means that I've built businesses before and then I've gotten bored of them very quickly. Right. They, they, you know, I'd, I'd solved the problem. Right. And all the little small problems don't seem that significant anymore. I don't want to do them. So I'd move on. And I had a mentor once said, he's like, you know, it really is like year four, year five, year six. That, that is where the wealth gets really interesting. But you've got to be able to keep building that period. Yeah. Otherwise, what you're doing is starting lots of little, not even fiefdoms, like villages. Right. And a village is no one as impressive as a kingdom. Yeah. So you said, you said you used this word a couple times, um, more than once, which was skill. And you and I have talked a lot about kind of skill. And, and I know you've coached people to figuring out, hey, like, what is, what is this, what is this unique skill that I have? And how do I own it? How do I be true to it? And uh, I think there's a lot of thought around, hey, the world expects me to be this way, but, and you're out of sync with that, with, with that messaging. Um, what are your thoughts around kind of the skill discovery? Is it, is it too late for some people to kind of figure that out? Is it, uh, how does somebody go about saying, hey, all right, this is, this is a talent, something, an interest, a talent and an interest blend that I know I can build a new capability on. What is the, what is the story or the kind of discovery process behind me owning a skill? First of all, I love this question. Man, it is expansive. It's such an expansive question. So just like full disclosure, we might go down a little rabbit hole, but all right. Uh, obvious to you, amazing to others. I think that's the first place to start with this. Huh. Obvious to you, amazing to others. And in full credit, that came from Derek Sivers. He yeah. was the founder of CD. Maybe smart guy, clever guy, great guy. But that phrase comes from him. So I think that's the first little idea you just want to plant in your mind. The second little thing is you tapped on this about being out of sync with what the world wants you to be. Yeah, you can call this a product of shame, a product of fear, a product of guilt, whatever you want. But at the end of the day, I think that you want to take a moment and ask yourself, am I playing a role? Like I know I've played roles in the past and I was trying to be people who I wasn't. I was trying to emulate mentors or people I looked up to, but that wasn't who I was. And that's really hard to recognize. So you do want to challenge yourself and go, hang on, hang on, hang on. Who am I trying to be? But more importantly, and I resisting what I'm really good at, my obvious to you, but amazing to other skills, am I resisting embracing those because I don't think I'm going to make a lot of money with them or right. because I don't think I'm like, they're cool, they're not fancy, which again, you know, shame and guilt and all this stuff. But I think that money-making one is so important because that's what I believe stops a lot of people from going and applying that skill to create value, right? So the idea being that in effectual reasoning, which you and I have spoken about before, an incredibly interesting idea, but you ask, who am I? What do I know? Who do I know? You know? What am I good at? What are my resources? That's that, that underlying question. And just by starting with that question, you're able to see where you add value to in the world. And in, in my worldview, that's how the world works. You add value to others. And the vast majority of the time, you can harvest a bit of the value that you added. That's what keeps you going. That's what makes fortunes. And when, when you ask these questions about who am I, what do I know, what am I good at, etc., you want to look at the ways that you can add value to other people's lives through it, but understand that the way people make money isn't through adding value, it's through capturing value. And that essentially means owning equity or a piece of the deal or a piece of the transaction. That's it. Nothing else. That's the secret. And, and add more value and capture more value than you spend. If you're really good, you'll build up value and equity, have a capital event, and you're done. Congratulations. That's Wealth Building 101. I make it sound really simple, but my God, it's hard. Yeah. That's the challenging part because you've got journey we just spoke about and then this, this next part, which is finding those skills and applying them consistently. So then after that is asking others, 
what you are uncommonly good at in their eyes. And I, and I like this phrase, right? Because you don't need to be world class. You don't need to be amazing. You don't need to be, uh, you know, what's my special unique strength? Just ask, what am I uncommonly good at? And if you ask your friends and your family, depending on your friends and your family, they might give you nice answers, but they're not necessarily valuable answers. You, my mum would probably tell you that I'm really good at ringing each week and catching up and staying in touch. It's not a hugely valuable thing to anyone else. I love my mom, but that's not going to be valuable. Whereas if I was to ring up you and say, hey, Sharon, man, look, I'm just doing a bit of self-reflection. I'm stumped. What am I uncommonly good at in your lives? Well, you have a economic understanding. You have a business understanding. And you say, oh, this is this. And if you know, rang up Craig Ballantyne or Matt Smith or someone else who I know, they would give me these perspectives too. And what they'd be able to do is say, hey, here's where you are uncommonly good at something. Uh, and maybe, maybe they'll turn around and say, dude, you're not very good at any of the things that you're doing. Maybe you need to go experiment, which is also okay. And there's a Hungarian-Romanian physicist whose name escapes me right now who wrote a book. Uh, it was called The Successful Mirror, and it was distilling the idea of success into S equals QR. Success equals the uh, quality of an idea, the potential value of an idea, and then your ability to realize that kind of value and that kind of idea. And he tracked the artists in terms of galleries and who became famous and who didn't. He tracked the amount of papers in which people were cited or referred to and research papers, all sorts of different careers, tennis players, you know, to identify that some people have an innate ability or skill or predisposition or temperament, whatever you want to call it, towards realizing the value within a high-value idea. Other people can go after the exact same high-value idea and be in the exact same network, have the exact same everything, except their ability to realize that potential value and unlock it is just not there. And it's typically known within a year within a field based on some of these research. You can just plot the trajectory almost perfectly. And it gives this great piece of advice, which I have not seen in any other book, which is if you've been at something for a while and if you're still struggling to get results, maybe you should give up because you're just not very good at it. <laughs> and I love that because who says that in this day and age it's all like rah 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 you can be whatever you want to be and that's nice and inspiring but man I'd much rather be good at what I'm good at as opposed to trying to be someone else and I think that comes back again to the ego side of stuff and the fear the shame the guilt of oh like no one wants to sit and talk with me for hours at a time to get my advice no one would pay for that well, people pay me really well because I make sure I give them advice that makes them a lot more money yeah you know, people, oh, no one, no one would ever do that for you. No one would ever give you a business like that. I had a conversation with a guy recently. I chose not to purchase his business. But I was talking to him about how much he valued his business at. You know, the old reality of you set the price, I'll set the terms. Yep. But then I asked him, you know, what would you use this money for? And he told me. And I said, well, why would you do that? And he told me. I said, well, why do you want that? And he told me. And it basically came down. This was incredible. I couldn't believe this. From the purchase price he requested, which was, a hundredfold bigger than this number. And maybe, yeah, a hundredfold bigger than this number, actually. He wanted $4,000 a month extra. That was it. This cash flow extra $4,000 a month. I said to him, so if, just to clarify, if I go through with this and, and, and I deem that what you've told me is accurate and this is a business I would, I would buy, blah, 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 if I gave you $4,000 a month, you'd, you'd do the deal. And he said, yep. <laughs> and my, my brain just, just melted because he was this, healthy seven-figure price, you know, it's a small business, but it's a good niche business. It dominates its market. It's going to be very hard to unsee. And I can get it for $4,000 a month if I want it. 
in the end, it was a bad, uh, quote unquote, soul in the game fit, right? Like, it's just not a business I'm going to care about. I can't add enough value to it. But I couldn't believe that that was the opportunity was, I'll give you $4,000 a month extra and you'll give me the keys to the car and the car. You'll give me everything. You're, I, you, you know, you, you say this, I, I got a, this is an insane story. Yeah. On how to actually find out in a very kind way what people are, their, their, their kind of bottom line, what they really want, right? Yeah. So uh, this is a very specific kind of real estate agent book of business. So this was in my past life when I owned uh, Tells Properties. One of our agents um, had become the, the call it the, the de facto mayor of her town, right? Small okay. town. She had 40% real estate market share in her town. That's insane. Huge, right? huge. And so she's, small, she's a small town, but literally four out of 10 signs deals in that, in that little uh, area got done by her. And she had gotten into this business much later. Uh, yeah. So she was going to like closer to retirement. And because of all that she had done, she had, she became this fixture in the community where she was uh, on this board on, you know, kind of like she had this, this community uh, yeah. pedestal, if you will. Right. And she was on boards of charity. She was on uh, boards of council. She was on school board. Short of being mayor, she was everything. Yeah. You also knew that, you know, she was not going to be able to run the business for much longer. And everybody wanted to quote, buy her business but she was unwilling to sell it. So one day she called me, she's like, Hey man, can you help me sell my business? I was like, sure, let's talk about it. Right. So I was like in an ideal world, literally this was two minutes into the coffee in an ideal world. Like, what do you want? And so she tells me I want X price, X price, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, all of that, take away the money. What do you want? And so mm. literally I just said, just take away the money. What else do you want? You know what Rob, she tells me, she says, I want, I don't want to lose the, the, I don't want to be taken off this pedestal in this town. Hmm. And she goes, I don't need the money. I just don't want to be taken off the pedestal in this town. So literally I, I had a younger junior agent pair her up with her. Yeah. And this younger junior agent for the first year got 20%. Every year she earned 20%. First year, 20%, next year, 20%, next year. So in five years, this younger agent got the full business, but they agreed to be lifetime partners where she would put oh, her right. photo first. That's it. Yep. She had zero involvement in the business. So this younger agent literally inherited a million dollar business for free just by putting her photo on all pieces of marketing. That's so good. It's so good. <laughs> well, this is the thing is that, and I love the way you described it is that it's how to find out what people want in a really kind way. And I've never heard it done exactly like that. And that's so cool to be able to see that you were able to elicit from her what really mattered to her. And it's, for me, when I was talking about that one before, he wanted security and cash flow, the monthly month. That's, that's what he wanted. Same thing. But it's that deeper human need. And I think by, you know, I'm kind of, I guess, observing retroactively what you're doing, but you met her where you're at, where she was at, and you were open. You say, hey, tell me. I got no judgment. It is something I've worked really hard to do, and I guess you probably will feel the same way, is letting go of that judgment that you have that stops you from really connecting with someone. Yeah. Letting go of those expectations. Like I've been reading the Bhagavad Gita lately and the Tao Te Ching, this great version called Getting Right with the Tao by Ron Hogan. And both of them talk about this whole thing. It's just like, let them go, man. Like, what expectations? Just, just see. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest, man. The more I've let go, the less goals I've set, but the more success I've had as I define it. And I think it's because a lot of the time I actually didn't really know what I wanted. I had a rough idea. Yeah. If I set a goal, 
they probably would have gone after it and realized it was the wrong thing and then failed again and then failed again and had success but been miserable. But by almost eliminating the vast majority of goals they were setting, things got good because it was open and had no expectation. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, sure. I, I, you, I think it takes a skill to actually be open to a non-judgmental conversation. Uh, right. And so I'm 50, 50 with that. I wish I could say I was an expert at it. uh, It's super hard. Like it's like you, you, um, a lot of times when I show up for a CEO mentoring call, like I am, I'm channeling, I'm kind of like, I meditate before I get on the call. That way it's like, I'm channeling. Then I'm like, they tell me they need hundred thousand dollars a month. Cool. How do we get there? Like, that's how I am. My question for you, Rob is a lot of people, the, the person listening is thinking, okay, Rob and Sharon are talking about maybe getting a consultant, a support system, someone to talk to, a mentor, a paid coach, uh, a board member, an advisory board, etc. What are some thoughts uh, or some ideas or guidelines or heuristics, if you will, right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, that someone can use as a map to have a good mentoring relation? I mean, use mentoring as a very, very broad bucket, but how do I have, it's taken me 10 plus years to be a good mentee. Yeah. How can we short circuit that process for somebody? Like what can we give them to be, to, to kind of open up and, and get the best out of the, having a mentor? It's a great question. And I want to do like the justice of that, answering in a valuable way. Okay. I think, I think I've got a meaningful way to respond to this. So I had someone hit me up recently and asking to be a mentee. And the reason they wanted me to mentor them was because they thought they could get value out of it. <clears throat> that was their perspective. If I get mentored by Rob Hanley, I'll make more money, I'll be happier, I'll have status or whatever it might be that they were deep, deep down seeking. And I'm happy to jump on a call with people from time to time. It was a fantastic message and they gave me some background. You know, don't ask, don't get, I, I'm open to that. But when we got on the call, we didn't spend about 15, 20 minutes just kind of trading back and forth. I just wanted to get a feel for them. But the question was self-serving. Mm. It was so focused on them, 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 them. What goals they wanted to achieve and whatnot. And I said to them, hey, look, do you mind if I'm really blunt? And they're like, sure, go for it. And I said, well, this is all about what you get out of this. Now, the truth is, like, I'm going to invest a lot of time, energy, and effort into mentoring. And that has to be worthwhile for me as well. Right. But all we're talking about right now is how this benefits you. That's it. How it benefits you. And what I'd really encourage you to do is go away and just ask yourself how you might be able to add value to me. Because right now you're asking to take, 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 take and almost give me responsibility for your life. Mm. And, and man, I don't have kids. If I, if I wanted to take responsibility for someone's life, I'd probably have a kid by now, you know, like, or a dog. I haven't even got a dog. I love dogs. I haven't even got a dog. And so I shared that with them and, you know, maybe they're going to write back to me today. I don't know, but I haven't heard from them yet. But what I think is underlying that, what I'm messaging here is don't do it for you. It's like, it's like Socrates talked about, I think it was Socrates, he said, the purpose of having a friend is not to have someone to hold your hand when you are sick, but to hold someone's hand when they are sick. Ah, that's good. And I, I think that works with mentorship because the truth is, as you know, mentorship, coaching, consulting is really rewarding. Uh, first of all, just to see someone grow and succeed and thrive and develop, it's whether it's your executive assistant or employee or business partner, like seeing someone do stuff without you that they couldn't do before is like oh, the sense of insane. It's so cool. Yeah. 
But uh, that's what we get out of it. But we also want to make sure that it's a, a good relationship for everyone. So we do get a reward from it, but it has to be worthwhile. It has to be with someone who wants to grow. So there's a, a guy who's been a, a great friend and mentor to me. And when people asked how he and I developed a relationship, he said that Rob, I and he would send him thoughtful questions on a regular basis. That was it. Just thoughtful questions. I did a podcast with a friend, James Schrankler, the other day. He was like, you know, I've known you for 10 years, but you just never asked for anything. You so rarely ask. Like, I sent you that email the other day asking for your thoughts. But he's like, even that, I don't like doing very often. I want to contribute to other people. And I know that if I can help you almost as an underling or an employee or a peer or whatever, I know I'll benefit from it, but that's not why I do it. It's just like a known back of mind thing. So if I was to seek out mentorship today, I would just go and try and improve someone's life in a meaningful, specific way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll give you one last example pulled up. I got another message from someone else the other day, uh, someone who knows Xander Fryer. And she, uh, Xander had asked me if I'd speak at a private mastermind of his. And so she was on that mastermind and she contacted me and said, hey, listen, you know, here's my name, here's how I know you um, and where I came across from you. And I'm contacting you about this thing that you just posted. Uh, I'm contacting you because there's an overlap with what I've done in the past, I'd like to offer you some pro bono support. Here's why I'm qualified to do so. I don't know enough about your business, but here's ways that I may be able to help you to give you an idea. Uh, I know you're probably really busy, but would you be open for a free call or a short call? I mean, wow. Like Amazing, you've right? Yeah. You've shown up. You've done the heavy thinking. You've, you've really taken the time to think about this, understand this, and just talk to me directly. Offer suggestions based on what you could glean and give it on pretty private. It's hard. And then I said, hey, I know you're probably really busy, but if you're open for a 20-minute conversation, I want to give you stuff for free. Boy, that's hard to say no to. Yeah. And well, we'll yeah. see what happens. Well, you know, the fascinating thing this is that you and I, um, we're very fortunate that there's a lot of inbound uh, saying, hey, can you help out? Help out? Can I hire you, et cetera? And my team gets a lot of that. And uh, they have very strict orders that if the first inbound is, what does it cost to hire Sharon? What does it cost to work with Sharon? What are the, as soon as it goes to that, the standard response is, thank you so much. Sharon's completely committed for the next three years. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to add you to the wait list. If you'd like, can you tell me about your business? Literally, you ask, how much is this? They go in the, I don't want to work with you bucket, right? And the most of the time it is, hey, I've seen, I, I, I heard you on a podcast with Rob Hanley. Um, you said something about singularity of focus. I Googled Sharon singularity of focus. I landed up on this YouTube video. I watched a two hour YouTube video that said something else. And I went on this, then I read your blog. I'm on your newsletter. And then on your newsletter, it said, if you want to talk to me, just hit reply with one-on-one -on -one, and I'm doing like that is a completely different experience, right? Because yeah. now I'm like, okay, I, you've put in all the work. I want to do more for you because you put in all the work and I don't even want any money for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You want to contribute. Yeah, and, and the interesting part is that the people think that the it's about the money, but they don't realize that it's not about the money for you know for us. And we write the check to get whatever we want. It's not about it. I when you reached out and you're like, hey, I want to you know talk about a couple of things. I know that I get more joy watching you crush it than me doing me crushing it myself. And I'm like, oh my god, that's so cool that Rob got to do that. And I was a I was a little part of it when he was thinking about it. And so. I think that's a really cool um, piece of guidance for people that says, hey, just don't reply and say how much to get into your coaching. Like that's not the approach because no. it, it frames the entry point in a really, really sick, weird way. It's, well, I think what it does is it commoditizes a relationship or a really intimate one of that. Yeah. Um, 
here's two more examples. I think case studies are such a great way to learn. But the first one is a year and a bit ago, I met a woman on the plane. We sat next to each other, got along super well, just had a great chat. And she contacted me not long after and was like, hey, like, you know, do you do this kind of stuff? Would you be open to it? And she added an immense amount of value to my life. Like I'm super appreciative of her because the way in which our agreement or arrangement, if you will, is structured is very personable. But it's also, we don't speak that often. She sends me weekly updates. I honestly don't always reply. She knows that I won't. But I call her from time to time. I check in with her. I care about her. But I also know that I need to care about her to give her the space to scrape her own knees, if you yeah. will, right? Convey that to someone who I was speaking to recently who wanted to work with me. Basically, I just said to him, like, hey, I hear from you that you're concerned about the time this might take up and what's going to demand of you. And that's totally fine. My biggest concern is that you're going to have the bandwidth to be able to implement what I share with you right. because I need this to work for me as well. I think people forget that this isn't buying a bar of soap or a mug where it's like, how much is it? Yeah, I can afford it. Cool. You're asking someone to invest their psychological, emotional ram into you and not into someone else because right. you know, I've got one client who I work with, for example, and he's killing it. He is great and he's built a multi-million dollar business very quickly, very successfully. And I had someone else reach out to me who would be maybe not immediately a direct competitor, but if they work with me, they will be a direct competitor. Yeah. And so I'm not going to work with him, which means that when I work with this guy who's been successful and we've built up, it means I'm saying no to everyone else. So if you want me to say no to everyone else, you can't just say, hey, much, how much does it cost? Like if you want to buy my attention to that level, like you can't afford it. No one can. Yeah. Because I'm an autonomous person. So that's the two sort of other examples that go alongside the understanding of being a good mentee is learn and help and invest in someone else's success who's above you and you will benefit incredibly. Yeah. And if I had to even sum it up further, it's uh, contribute aggressively to someone else's success with really healthy boundaries because some people will seek to take advantage of you, but that's it. Yeah. Be a great case study. Ryan Holiday talked about it as the blank canvas method. Yeah. Charlie Hone spoke about it in free work. If you just went and read those things as well, you just have such a bigger understanding of yourself. Um, this leads into something really great, which is um, for those of you who are not following Rob on Instagram, you should because he gets on these uh, story rants, which yeah. are literally like mini books on stories, which is amazing. And it's like, it's probably, and I, I told Rob this, by the way, he'll say, he'll just, he literally will teach you stuff on 17 stories. And I, I told Rob once, I'm like, dude, I was screenshotting 17 <laughs> stories. This is like, can you just send me this stuff? This is crazy. So if you want a MBA in Instagram stories, you should follow Rob Hanley. But Rob, um, where can where can people get a little bit more about uh, about you? Yeah, sure. So I mean, Instagram is obviously the easiest jump off. It's just at Rob Hanley, R-O-B-H-A-N-O-Y. Um, I keep a pretty light footprint, to be honest, on the internet. Uh, but other than that, there is a handful of podcasts. Obviously, this one now you should run, which has probably rounded out my total online podcast. Six. <laughs> uh, but there is one with Craig Ballantyne on fixing businesses and a three-part series I recently did with James Tramco on super yeah. fast business. And that's it. Other than that, you can go to robhanley.com, R-O-B-H-A-N-L-Y.com, where I talk a little bit about the work I do and the dome framework that I use. And that's it. I, I keep a very low profile. My experience in life has taught me that one-to-one relationships have been really fruitful for me. Um, I love mass publishing, but I really would prefer to keep it more intimate. Yeah. Hey, um, every time I, every time I talk to you, I, uh, I'm a better person. I appreciate you for 
hanging out and dropping insane value, my friend. Uh, you're yeah, awesome. likewise, man. I appreciate the ability that you give me to learn from you and to share as well. So thank you. Hey, Sharon, I have a cool gift for you. I took some of my best ideas from the last 20 years and created a five-day MBA. It's quick and action-packed that you can listen to on the go, just like this podcast. And I want to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for listening to the show. No fluff, no gimmicks, just pure actionable ideas for you to use instantly. You can grab it right now at businessschoolshow.com. That's businessschoolshow.com. Dot com.